Welcome to Cliffs and Fences, the intersection of public health, policy, and healthcare. My name is Jared Ormsby, and join me as I sit down with medical professionals across the globe to discuss topics ranging from your personal health to reinventing how healthcare is delivered. Each episode is designed with the goal to make understanding health an easy-to-digest process. If you like what you hear, consider subscribing to our channel and sharing it with those you know. If you have questions or want us to cover a specific topic, feel free to email the show at cliffsandfencespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Joining me now is Dr. Jay Bhattacharya. Dr. Bhattacharya is a professor of medicine at Stanford University. He is a research associate at the National Bureau of Economics Research, a senior fellow at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research. He holds courtesy appointments as professor in economics and in health research and policy. Dr. Bhattacharya serves as the director of the Stanford Center on the Demography of Health and Aging. His research focuses on the economics of healthcare around the world, with a particular emphasis on the health and well-being of vulnerable populations. Dr. Bhattacharya's peer-reviewed research has been published in economics, statistics, legal, medical, public health, and health policy journals. He holds an MD and PhD in economics from Stanford University. Dr. Bhattacharya, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a great pleasure to be here. So uh, I brought you on, uh, and we'll definitely hop into these recent emails that have been, uh, I don't want to say leaked, I mean, they're public information, uh, but I brought you on to talk a little bit about the Great Barrington Declaration, Declaration uh, which you are an author of, uh, talk a little bit about some of the censorship that's gone on and uh, wrap it up with uh, what the current state is of the pandemic. Uh, but let's first, let's start off with the, the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, that was written over a year ago now. When did you first, when did you and your colleagues first get the inclination that a declaration uh, such as the GBD was was necessary and, and uh, needed to be drafted? So uh, the GBD, the Great Barrington Declaration, came out of a small conference organized by Harvard professor Martin Kuhldorf in Great Barrington, Massachusetts. Uh, he invited me and Professor Sunetra Gupta from Oxford University uh, the, the invitation wasn't to do a declaration. The invitation was just to compare notes. Um, all three of us had sort of uh, found each other uh, through the course of the epidemic. And although we were coming from sort of slightly different places, we'd sort of arrived, I think, at the, I mean, we quickly realized we arrived at the same point. We had grave concerns about the harms of the lockdowns that we saw that had been imposed in the spring and we saw were coming in the winter. Um, the harms extended to enormous, uh, to, to large populations of poor people around the world. Uh, and they, they come to fruition, 100 million people thrown into poverty, 80 million people in dire food insecurity, hundreds of thousands of children dead from starvation um, in, in poor countries. And of course, in richer countries, there are health harms as well. People skipping cancer treatments, people sk skipping cancer, cancer screening, diabetes management, heart disease, uh, psychological a harm on a level I've never seen before. Um, so uh, the public health consequences of the lockdowns were much broader than just COVID control, although for very weird reasons, for reasons I don't still understand, much of public health blinded itself to those harms. Uh, at the same time, there was this thousand-fold difference in the age, uh, uh, in, in terms of the age of, of severe disease in response to a COVID infection or a SARS-CoV-2 infection. Older people are a thousand times more likely to die than young people if they're infected or more, actually. 
And that's before the vaccine. The vaccine didn't change that age gradient. So uh, that meant that you, there was a strategy available that didn't involve a lockdown that could reduce some of the harms from the lockdown while still protecting the most vulnerable population. And that, that strategy was focused protection. Uh, we, when we sat down to talk with each other at, the, at that conference in October, 2020, um, the, the declaration came out of that conversation. And our goal was to start a conversation with the public health community at large. Up to that point, the public perception had been that there was a consensus, a scientific consensus in favor of lockdown, the only possible way to deal with the pandemic. But I knew, Sunetra Gupta knew, and Martin Kulldorff knew that that was not true. Many, many, many scientists had deep reservations about the lockdown strategy we had followed. And so that's why we wrote the declaration, to start a conversation about how best to protect the vulnerable while not imposing a lockdown that had caused so much public health damage. I want to I want to ask two follow up questions. One about the age stratification of the risk of COVID. Um, so we can just kind of put some context to that, give an example uh, for the audience. So let's say for me, I'm 24 years old. Um, I don't have any underlying conditions. I exercise you know, maybe four or five days out of the week. Um, I feel like I'm in pretty good shape. I try to eat the best I can, avoiding, you know, as much processed food as possible. What is my, um, what is my risk? And let's compare that to maybe the risk of someone that is maybe overweight, uh, that isn't, uh, you know, that, that has asthma or other underlying conditions. What's the risk difference between me and, and that, that person? So I have a very simple rule of thumb. It's it's a, it's rough, but it's it, I think it gets within pretty close to what what your risk really is. And and this is before before the vaccines, before vaccines with yeah. the earlier before the Omicron variant, which is I think milder. Um. So uh, and that's the the numbers I'm going to give are based on uh an analysis of a large number of zero prevalence studies. Zero prevalence means. Uh, the prevalence of, of blood anti antibodies in the blood that are specific to COVID in this context. Um, and uh, there were hundreds of these studies. I ran a couple of them over the pandemic. Uh, the, the, what, and with, with that, you can know how many people get infected and you know how many people died. You can get a much more accurate estimate of the death rate mm -hmm. than simply looking at cases, which is doesn't count a lot of people who get infected and then don't show up with, uh, with a test. So uh, the, uh, the estimate is that if you are 50 years old, roughly, there's a 0.2% infection fatality rate. So 99.8% survival if you get infected. That's if you're 50, 50 years old. For every seven years of age above and below, you either double or have it. So a 43-year-old would have a 0.1% infection fatality rate or 99.9% .9 survival. A, a 36 year old would have a 0.05% infection fatality rate. And a 29 year old would have a 0.025% infection fatality rate. Um, and you know, tw a 22 year old would have a 0.0125. So 99.99, I'm getting around out of nines um, pretty quickly. Um, so uh, whereas if you go the other direction, 57 year olds will be 0.4, 64 will be 0.8. You can see it, it gets pretty high very quickly for older people. So you have a very, very sharp age gradient in mortality. If you're obese, if you're morbidly obese or, or, or have like some chronic underlying conditions like diabetes that predispose you to the to bad outcomes, 
Think of it like aging seven years, essentially doubling your risk. So an obese 50-year-old would have a 0.4% infection mortality rate. Um, a, you know, you would have, I mean, like somewhere between like point, like, I mean, you're, you're, you're 0.125. If you were obese, you'd be 0.25, 0.025. So it, it's, uh, it increases the risk, but it doesn't increase as much as aging does seven years. Like it's like, as if you'd age seven years in terms of the risk, the vaccine, um, uh, at least in the first few months after you get it makes your infection fatality rate drop by tenfold. And if you were to, let's say we were to just go out, you and I on the street here in the Bay Area, and we were to ask, and this is just a, you know, obviously a non, very non-scientific experiment. If we were to ask someone, like someone you see walking outside by themselves, uh, you know, with a mask, um, what do you think their response would be? If you were to ask them, you know, how dangerous is COVID to you? Um, what do you think their response would be? Well, I mean, there are, you don't have to do an anecdotal study. I mean, we, there are actually now people that have gone out and done these kinds of studies. And people vastly overestimate the infection fatality rate, and they vastly overestimate the hospitalization rate by orders of magnitude, 10, 20, 100-fold in some cases. Uh, both Republicans and Democrats do this, but the overestimate is much greater by Democrats than Republicans. Uh, the perception about the infection fatality rate from this disease in the population is vastly overstated relative to what the evidence actually shows. Um, the, other, the other thing that people will sometimes say, if you go out into the population here, and they'll talk about long COVID. And uh, long COVID is a set of symptoms that persists after you recover from the acute infection. Um, they include things like fatigue, headache, um, you know, th th things that, uh, that, that, uh, that are, are uh, they persist for a, long, for, for a while. And in some cases can be quite debilitating for some people. The uh, early studies of long COVID suggested it was quite common. People will sometimes still cite to me these studies where like 30% of the population that are recovered have some of these symptoms that last months and months later. Yeah, it turned uh, now first a couple of notes. One is that post-viral syndrome is not just unique to COVID. It happens with the flu. It happens with other, other viral infections, especially if you've had a very severe bout with it. So if you've landed in the ICU and recovered, you're going to have some lingering, lingering you know, difficulties uh, that, you, that, that, that no matter what has to do with be, being in the ICU, um, with being sick enough to land yourself in the ICU. Uh, that's not the typical outcome. Later, and, and, and now there've been a set of studies that have been much more careful in trying to understand how prevalent long COVID actually is. And in particular, the early studies suffered from a problem, which is that they uh, didn't actually ascertain whether the person who was claiming to have long COVID symptoms had actually previously had COVID. And so when you've done these, when these careful studies come out, there was, for, for instance, recently a very, very large and well-done study published in France, published by a group in France, that found that long COVID symptoms in the population, in, in adults, is about 5% of cases. But if you take a matched group of people who didn't get COVID and track them as well, maybe 3% of them also report long COVID symptoms, even though it's not actually due to COVID. So the prevalence, it does happen, but it's much rarer than people think. And for children, the group 
of patients who had COVID and recovered had about 3% prevalence of long COVID about three months after recovery. But then so did the group of kids matched that uh, didn't have COVID also had at least one of those long COVID symptoms three months after the matching. So it's, it's, it's unclear. I mean, I think it is a real phenomenon. I think it's relatively rare. It's worth studying and managing and devising, uh, you know, sort of ways to, to, to help people with, but it's something that I, I don't think should overly worry most people. Would you say that this sort of inability to estimate risk and, uh, you know, I'm talking about long COVID and, and, and really conceptualizing that, is that come simply from public health? Has it come from the media, politics, or is it just a mixture of both? What's the source of all this uh, misrepresentation? Well, I, th- I think um, I think public health is, I mean, you, I've, I've talked to people in the media who say media is responsible. I, I think it's, it's there's a, a shared responsibility here. Uh, but I think the root problem is public health. I think it's very difficult in normal times for people to assess risk. People often uh, focus their attention on small risks while ignoring very large risks in their lives. In, in this case, uh, what you had is a, a situation where public health, uh, some of the very top people in public health worked very hard to panic the population, to create fear in the population in order to gain compliance with measures that they thought were necessary to control the spread of the disease. The media then worked with them to amplify that message, to silence voices that suggested that there may be other policies possible uh, that would reduce the harm from uh, to public health at, at, at large. Um, and uh, I think politicians, many of them, essentially were fooled by some of these top people in public health into thinking that the only responsible thing to do was to lock down. And I think that that sort of, uh, and you know, if you can, for most politicians, they don't know a, a ton about epidemiology, about public health. And, um, and they're hearing the very top people in the country telling them or around the world telling them that you have to shut down. Um, well, it's very difficult to push back against that. And no, very, 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 very few of them did. One thing you mentioned that obviously stuck out to me was the censorship and the silencing. Uh, soon after the the Great Barrington Declaration was released, um, there was a um, counter declaration, I guess you could call it, the John John Snow Memorandum, um, who was who was actually signed by uh, some of our public health officials now, most notably uh, Dr. Walensky from the CDC. Um, and I want to bring up. I want to bring up some of the the content in that declaration. Um, they said, and it seems, I mean, you can uh, tell me if I'm wrong or not, but this, this sort of excerpt that I took out seems to be uh, attacking or calling out the, the GBD. It says, uh, the arrival of a second wave and the realization of the challenges ahead has led to renewed interest in so-called her immunity approach, which suggests allowing a large uncontrolled outbreak in the low risk population while protecting the vulnerable. This is a dangerous fallacy unsupported by scientific evidence. Uh, is that uh, indirectly stabbing at the GBD? And if so, what's the GBDs and what's your response to that? Yeah, so it's, it's a misconstrual of what the GBD actually said to do. Uh, in order to get essentially a propaganda technique in order to get their way. 
Um, the the uh, GBD talks about herd immunity, not because we proposed it as a strategy. That is actually nonsensical. Uh, the, the end point of the epidemic is a sufficiently large fraction of the population is immune. And so you don't get very, very large waves causing severe deaths uh, as we did early in the epidemic. Uh, when you have an immune naive population, you're susceptible to a very large wave causing mass death. When you have a more protected population, protected by immunity, either by COVID recovery or by vaccination, then you're much less susceptible. You, you can still get waves, as, as we've been seeing, you can get very large waves of cases, um, but they don't necessarily produce the same level of hospitalizations and deaths that previous waves did because the population is protected by that kind of immunity. Um, we, for instance, the other common cold viruses that have exactly this feature. They are seasonal, many of them in nature. So they, they come in waves, they produce, they harm some people. I mean, if you're yeah, immunocompromised or if you're old uh, and, and vulnerable, it can still, uh, even a common cold can kill you. Um, but they don't produce the mass deaths and, and uh, that, that we saw early in the epidemic that came with COVID. Um, essentially, the end point of the epidemic, no matter what strategy you follow, whether you let it rip, whether you lock down, or, if, or you do, do a focus protection strategy, as we argued for in the, uh, in the uh, Great Barrington Declaration, no matter what strategy you do, the end point of the epidemic is a decoupling of cases from deaths. And that's and that's something we're seeing right now uh, is that decoupling. You know, I spoke with with Monica Gandhi at UCSF, and and she's and she's been advocating, hey, like let's take a look at these metrics again because we're seeing a decoupling of of deaths, hospitalizations with cases. Um, and obviously, there's some big hysteria uh, with the cases right now. Uh, I wonder if we could just go back really quick uh, to focus protection. Um, many people here in the Bay Area may not know what that means or what that looks like because we have been subject to blanket uh, mandates, blanket restrictions, right? Everyone must mask uh, in all in all uh, circumstances. Um, can you give us an example of what focus protection would look like logistically? Sure. Um, so the key thing about focus protection is that it has to be a very customized thing in, in the sense that the living conditions of the vulnerable, the elderly, vary from place to place, and the resources available to protect them vary from place to place. So focus protection means something very different in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area than it does in rural Montana. The goal of the Great Barrington Declaration, in my mind, was to strike a conversation up so that public health officials who know their communities well would focus their attention on protecting the most vulnerable as opposed to enforcing the lockdowns. A lot of the attention of public health officials through the pandemic has been on lockdown enforcement. Been, I've been involved with court cases pro bono where I've been, uh, where, where like churches were closed, where uh, private Bible studies were banned. I've been involved with cases where uh, they're trying to force uh, uh, compliance with masking orders uh, or, 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 or for, forcing schools to stay closed, right? These are the kinds of activities to which our public health officials devoted themselves rather than protecting the vulnerable. Or I shouldn't say rather than, that's a little unfair. Uh, it, it's, it, in addition to trying to protect the vulnerable, they divided their attention away from the key crucial thing, 
which is protecting the vulnerable. Um, the, now, the protection of the vulnerable could mean many things. As I said, it depends on the local living circumstances of the elderly population and older and vulnerable populations in an area. So, for instance, people living in a nursing home where 40% of the COVID deaths have, have been in through the epidemic. Well, for people living in a nursing home, that may involve reducing staff rotations. So for instance, maybe we uh, pay people who work in nursing homes hazard pay so that they, and we require them to stay as residents also and not leave the nursing home for a month. They go home, you know, they, they like we used to do this with, with doctors in, in the old days. That's why called medical residents. You had doctors actually living in the hospital um, while taking care of patients. We could have, we could have reinstituted that because a lot of the tracking in of COVID was staff members coming, leaving and coming home, leaving and coming, you know, going to work, coming home, tracked in COVID despite testing. Um, we did try to do, do some things like increase testing resources available there, uh, improving the, the level of, you know, sort of high quality masks in those settings. Um, it still didn't work. 40% of deaths. We didn't really do as much as we ought to have to protect older people in nursing homes. Um, in um, in community settings, it, it, it may, di may differ. So let's imagine the population of older people living alone in uh, in the Bay Area, in in sort of ranch housing. Well, there, what we could have done is we well what we what some Bay Area counties did is is they had elderly only hour at grocery stores to go shopping. Well, that you still then have to go out and get exposed during periods of high transmission. Um, you're not really protecting them. You can be around el other elderly people and still catch the disease. Uh, we could have arranged for food delivery, free food delivery to people living alone, elderly people living alone at home. Um, we could have asked neighbors to pitch in. If you have an elderly neighbor, well, why don't you call them up and offer to help you know, shop for them right, and drop off groceries for them? Right? We could have organized efforts to support elder people living at home to isolate during periods of high transmission, which we didn't do. Um, in places where there's lots and lots of people living in multi-generational homes, like LA County is a good example of this, Hispanic population off, and others live in multi-generational homes where grandma lives with, with grandson, um, what we could have offered resources like short-term hotel stays for free for the older person. So when grandson calls and says, grandma, I think I, I, I was exposed to COVID, um, someone who might have COVID, then grandma calls up public health. Can I use the hotel room for a couple of days? And then until, until the grand, grandson's checks out negative, right? Uh, we could have encourage those kinds of, of interventions. And of course, every single community might be different in terms of the living arrangements. Local public health, in my experience, has long been well attuned to the, to the needs of the vulnerable people in their community, right? The marginalized populations, uh, vulnerable, vulnerable people all throughout their community. It's different from place to place. It was fully within their capacity to think about how to creatively protect the vulnerable. Uh, now, it's not possible in a short document to, to list all of this. We gave some of these ideas. The ideas I just gave were in the documents that we wrote. Um, but what I was hoping was that local public health officials who know their communities well would participate in this conversation and think of creative ways to protect the vulnerable people living in their neighborhoods. Instead, 
what happened at the local level was this idea that only a lockdown by suppressing community spread would protect the vulnerable. There was no other way. That turned out to be false. And that was at the heart of the, of the John Stone memory, this idea that if we control community spread, we automatically protect the vulnerable. Well, it's kind of a strange thing. It's like, if we can protect 100% of the population, well, that, 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 that's, that's going to be easy. But if we can't protect 10% of the population, that's going to be hard, right? It's, it's just an illogical way to think. Um, and yet the Lancet published that. Uh, the, other, the other thing uh, in that John Snow memorandum, that they just got a basic scientific fact wrong. We already talked about how they got herd immunity wrong. But they also got a, another scientific fact wrong. They intimated that people who recovered from COVID have no protection against reinfection that there was no immunity provided by recovery from COVID. That's just false. It was false in October of 2020, and it was known false, I think, in October of 2020. And, and the evidence that it's false has just built up over to, uh, to, to, to be overwhelming by, by now. There's no question that people who are COVID recovered have substantial protection um, against reinfection and also, and also against severe disease. It's not that you can't be reinfected. I think that, that, that before Omicron, the studies were saying something like 0.3 to 1% reinfection rate at one year after COVID recovery. Uh, Omicron, I think uh, you can still get now, I think the reinfection rate is probably higher, although there's no definitive study as yet done. Um, and, but I think um, that reinfection produces, tends to produce disease that is milder than the initial disease. And that's certainly true with Omicron. What, what do you think with ignoring, uh, let's, um, I had a question about, um, I mean, I, I would say if, if people didn't know this already, I'd be very surprised, but with those, with those blanket, you know, protect a hundred percent of the community, uh, stop all transmission, what harms are being seen now, uh, from, I don't want to say protecting the healthy, because I mean, obviously we want to, we want to save as many lives as possible. We want to avoid bad outcomes as much as possible. Um, but what outcomes are we seeing for those healthy individuals uh, now? And what what uh, what bad outcomes do you think we'll see from the lockdowns down the road? So um, one of the realities of a lockdown uh, is that although you people sometimes think of it as this thing where everyone, if we just act responsibly together, we can get through this. In fact, the reality of a lockdown is very different for someone who has a home, who lives in a community that, uh, that, that, that allows a lockdown to happen, that, that has a job that they won't lose if they, if they, because they can do it online. Um, the lockdown, the effect of lockdown is very different on the laptop class than it is on the working class. For the laptop class, a lockdown is maybe an inconvenience. You essentially have people serving you. So instead of having people uh, bring groceries to vulnerable people, we had people bringing groceries to people uh, to, 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 to uh, young professionals in, in, in big tech who could afford to order DoorDash. Um, you, you, uh, so we structured our society to protect that class of people. Large, and some people are vulnerable in that class, but in large part, not vulnerable. For the rest of society, we said you're an essential, you're essential. 
in this sort of Orwellian way. What that mean essential means you have to go out and get exposed to the virus. You know, if you're an agricultural worker, if you uh, keep electrical lines going, if you are uh, if you are a, a garbage truck driver, if you are uh, a um, if you are a, a, a nurse or a doctor, um, well, you still have to get exposed, no matter whether you're vulnerable or not. Um, now, and, and the other thing what that happened that in terms of the actual social reality of the lockdown is that there was a big uh, red-blue divide, in particular with schools. Schools tended to be open in red areas. Schools tend to be closed in blue areas. Um, and so you have this like very strange situation where uh, people are thinking about lockdown as this uniform intervention that's very responsible, keeping people apart from each other. Um, in order to not spread the virus. But in fact, the reality is you had one class of people risking themselves to serve another class of people. That's the actual reality of a lockdown. Um, and I think in the Bay Area, people don't really understand this. Much of, the, much of the people who are in effect controlling health policy in the Bay Area are themselves in the laptop class. I myself am in the laptop class. I didn't lose my job during the pandemic although I'm sure there are people that wanted that to happen. Um, I, th I think, um, so if you think about it that way, it should come as no surprise that the lockdowns didn't work. Lockdowns are possible for the rich and the laptop class. They're not possible for the vast majority of society, not, not, not in, the, in the sense that people mean it. Um, it's just not, it's not human. Now you asked about what the harms are. Um, well, we've already seen a stage shift in cancer diagnoses. A stage shift means that patients are showing up with later stage cancer. Women are showing up with late stage breast cancer that should have been caught last year with a, with a mammogram at an earlier stage. So we're gonna have higher cancer death rates. We're, we're already seeing a huge backlog of, 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 uh, of poorly managed heart disease. There were actually stories of people dying at home with heart attacks because they're so afraid of COVID, they didn't go to the hospital last year, 2020. Um, uh, an, an enormous backlog of sort of unmet health needs over the course of two years, because we, we both, because we tried to keep hospitals empty, which we succeeded in, by the way, most of the years that the hospital were empty, um, in order, or below capacity, in order to keep it room open for COVID patients, and also because people were so scared of COVID that they, and for reasons having to do with public health scaring them, that they didn't see their basic health needs met. Health needs met. Um, and if you and uh, psychologically, there was absolutely catastrophic damage. So in July of 2020, the CDC ran a study that found nationwide that one in four young adults seriously considered suicide. The uh, a level of psychological harm to the population at large is 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 just you know and and particularly to, to young people and children is just catastrophic, right? So you're seeing a huge increase in inpatient admissions for psychiatric conditions for children. Uh, I don't think that's very easy to undo, and it will take an enormous effort to first to to reduce the panic around COVID, especially for panic around. COVID in children, right? Parents are panicked about their kids getting COVID. 
Well, the, the data su- suggests that that panic is probably likely to harm them more than the, the COVID itself. Um, so that that's um, that's the kind of harm I think you see at the lo- at the at the local level from these uh, the school closures in particular I think are going to have incredibly long term effects in terms of harm harm to the to, to kids uh, the the literature on on uh, the benefits from schooling in health health economics have, the people have been studying this now for decades it turns out that even short interruptions in schooling or short reductions in schooling can have long-term consequences for children. Um, this comes from evidence where people look at uh, uh, increasing the, uh, the required years of schooling, like so, some state might increase it from 16 to 17. And then the question is what happens to the kids that were uh, only required to go until they were age 16 versus the kids required to go to age 17. Turns out that that, that increasing to age 17 had a big effect on improving the long-term health of the, the, the kids who basically stayed in school longer. Um, there are similar lines of evidence like this for before the epidemic that suggest that even short-term disruptions can have long-term consequences. People who have tried to do simulations of this, of just the interruption of schooling in May 20, or through spring of 2020, have found, estimated that just that short interruption in spring of 2020 will lead over the lifetimes of these kids to a reduction in life expectancy on the order of five and a half million life years. And uh, kids who have these, their school schooling interrupted like this, while they fare worse in school, they have worse school outcomes. Over the long term, what happens is they also end up leading poorer, unhealthier, shorter lives. Uh, and that I expect to see over over the next uh, ne- next decades. Um, I mean, just a, a small thing, but it's not you all. Maybe not all that small. Literacy rates have, have dropped because how do you che- teach a five year old to read over Zoom? You don't. <laughs> um, yeah, it's very difficult, right? And and it's not evenly spread. So if you are well off, you could afford, and many did to send their kids to private schools, to hire private tutors, to, to, to have their kids in private pods, to replace the fact that the public schools were not giving the kids their education. If you're poorer, come from a working class family, poor family, that was very difficult to do. Many, many women quit their jobs to stay home and take care of the kids. You have the, a huge decrease in um, in female labor force supply, much more like whereas in the 2008 recession it was the other way around, more men dropped out of work. Um, so you uh, and uh, the other alternative was just to let your kids fare for themselves, which you had no choice to do because you had to bring you had to you had to you had to have a paycheck so you can feed your family, right? We put a lot of poor families in that situation where they had to choose between the education they provide for the kids and caring caring for their kids in other ways. Um, and the harm to poor kids, the disruption in the schooling of poor kids is vastly more than, than the disruption of, of schooling for, for richer kids. This is the single biggest generator of inequality I've ever seen in my lifetime as far as the policy goes, the closure of schools. And uh, we did it in the Bay Area without even a second thought. I wonder, why why do you think that you know, everything you just listed off wasn't wasn't necessarily opinion. I mean, you gave some of your opinion there, but a lot of what you're 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 stating is just things that have been researched. Um, and 
why is it why does it seem that these ideas uh, these harmful outcomes are considered dangerous to bring up um i'll give you a short little story you've you've received much more um censorship uh, than than i ever will but i'm i'm part of this facebook group uh just in my local community and i i tried i th- there was just a lot of fear mongering going on at least i felt uh where there was a panic about the omicron cases uh and um, you know, we need to stay inside, wash our hands, you know, get that N95 on. Uh, and I simply commented, well, what do we know about Omicron, right? Uh, it seems as though as it's milder, it seems like the vaccines are still working. Um, let's not jump to uh, saying that we need to lock down because there, there is a downside to it. There is, there is sort of a harm. Um, my comments were, I mean, again, I'm not the admin and I don't get to make the decisions, but my comments were taken down. Um, you too have received that censorship on a on a bigger scale. The the GBD uh, wasn't uh, allowed to be posted on Facebook. I don't know if that's still the case. Uh, I saw it taken down on Reddit. Um, your uh, I think you did a roundtable with the other authors of the GBD uh, with uh, Governor DeSantis uh, in Florida. That video was pulled down for for a while. I don't know if it's back up now. Um, why are we so Why are we so naive? Why are we so uh, Why do we why do we, uh, why, no, I don't want to say we, why does society, people that are sort of uh, against what the GBD stands for, why is there so much pushback? Why is there so much uh, effort to, to take down these ideas? Well, I, th- I think one thing that I've learned uh, in, in recent months with the, uh, with the uh, revelation of these emails that you referred to at the beginning of our talk, our discussion, um, was that there was a concerted effort at the highest levels of the scientific establishment within the government to suppress debate around alternatives to lockdowns. They essentially organized a propaganda campaign. And uh, in order to create this idea, this, this illusion that there was a consensus in favor of lockdowns within the scientific community, and that the only way to deal with the pandemic was the way they proposed to deal with the pandemic. They, meaning people like uh, uh, Tony Fauci, proposed to deal with the pandemic. Um, the the uh, the the censorship that you're seeing in big tech is big tech cooperating with government to enforce that propaganda campaign. Um, it's not dangerous for people to to cite well documented evidence that lockdowns have harmed populations. That's just, it's just a fact. You can blind yourself to that in fact or not blind yourself to the fact, but that the fact remains a fact. The reason why censorship happens it, from all one-sided in that sense, uh, in order to, to, is to preserve the illusion that somehow if you're pointing out the harms of the lockdown, you're on the fringe that that all reasonable people understand that the lockdown is the only way. It was a concerted effort by people like Tony Fauci and people like uh, Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, people like Jeremy Farrar, the head of, of the Wellcome Trust in the UK, to essentially manufacture a consensus that did not exist in the scientific community. And when in October 2020, we wrote the Great Parenting Declaration and exposed the fact that consensus did not actually exist because, you know, uh, it's hard to like really to, to say that 
people working uh, as professors at Harvard, Stanford, and and Oxford are, are fringe fringe figures. Um, and but not forget about us. Tens of thousands of scientists, doctors signed the Great Branton Declaration, and write started writing about their reservations of lockdown policy. That that illusion that there was actually consensus was impossible to maintain without a concerted propaganda effort. I believe that propaganda effort extended from before the pen, before October 2020, before the Great Barrington Declaration. It's almost the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, we've had concerted efforts by uh, government working together with big tech and with the media to suppress alternate points of view, to marginalize them. Um, and uh, I, I don't believe that a lockdown would have been possible, certainly not the October, the, the, the winter lockdown of 2020, without that. Uh, they manufactured a consensus, a public consensus in favor of lockdowns, made it politically challenging for politicians who disagreed with, with it or had reservations about it, um, and in effect fooled America and fooled the world. I wonder why, I mean... So just to just to catch listeners up, um, uh, I didn't outline the emails in detail. There was some correspondence between uh, Francis Collins of the NIH uh, with Anthony Fauci. Uh, Obviously, uh, people, everyone knows Anthony Fauci nowadays, uh, you know, with as many interviews as he does on TV. Um, There was some correspondence between the two where uh, Francis Collins reaching out to Anthony Fauci had called uh, the Great Barrington Declaration, not not the declaration itself fringe, but you as as authors fringe, fringe epidemiologists, I think is what it said. And uh, if my if my memory serves me right, uh, Fauci had responded and saying, yes, it's it's underway. Um, what, why, why, why result to uh, sort of name calling, right? Why not? Uh, why not just let something like, let's say the Great Barrington Declaration is just completely wrong and there is a consensus, why not just let it exist and, uh, you know, prove through science? Uh, because, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, we're, we don't seem to be relying on the CDC and NIH for our COVID information. We're, we're relying on, uh, you know, private institutions and, and, and other countries for our data. They're not really, they don't seem to be pumping out any really good facts about COVID-19. Why not just let the GBD be and uh, disprove it through science? Why not? Well, I think I think um, uh, actually, just let me correct you on one thing. M- much of the best information, the best science of of COVID epidemiology, has come from other countries, not from the United States, and not from the right. CDC. Despite our vast budget, you know, countries like Qatar, uh, like Israel, like Sweden, uh, like Denmark, have produced fantastic study after fantastic study, whereas our own CDC has produced effectively uh, a lot of nonsense. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, so your question is about why not let it let the debate happen? Well, it wasn't it wasn't enough to let the debate happen. They would have lost that debate, right? So what the the um, uh, the propaganda effort to marginalize any voice that that disagreed uh, had to have this personal component to it, or else uh, the, those voices would be. In the, and back in October, I kept hearing this word "platformed." We have to deplatform the GBD. Um, and because if if you let a debate happen, the the the, the I mean, here's the secret about the GBD: it's not a new idea. It wasn't even a radical idea. This is the same pandemic policy 
that we have followed for 100 years of the respiratory uh, pandemics. And it succeeded in minimizing the harm, uh, the, the public health harm as a whole. I mean, any pandemic is going to produce death. It's a, it's a really unfortunate fact about human life that there's something's going to kill us. It's just, it just, we are going to die of something. And pandemics hasten that for many people. Uh, uh, public health policy should seek to protect people from that, should seek to devise vaccines and treatments for, for that. But at the same time, it should have a broad view of public health where you take into account all the other harms and risk that people face to public health. So the GBD was just a re-articulation of the old pandemic plan that worked in, in a whole sequence of pandemics that, that the United States and, and the world has faced over the, over the decades. Right? It's the plan we followed in 2009 with H1N1. Right? It's, not, it's nothing new. They knew they would lose that debate. And yet in October of 2020, they had already imposed a devastating lockdown in the spring that had not accomplished what they said it would. They said it would essentially help reduce the risk of COVID to zero, make the, the, make the COVID go away. It was clear to me in October that that was not true. It was clear to me actually even in April of 2020 that, that was not true, that there was no technology that we possessed to make COVID go away. And yet some of the very most powerful people in science on, had, on earth had pushed this policy, had created this harm, had engaged the world in this massive lockdown experiment and failed. They doubled down on it because of the, that failure. The hubris didn't let them admit that they'd made an enormous mistake. And rather than engage with the scientific community at large, which is having reservations about this lockdown focused policy, they had to marginalize, make it painful to speak up. So when the head of the NIH, Francis Collins, write, uh, writes that these are fringe epidemiologists and dangerous ideas, and then creates this sort of uh, propaganda campaign where he mischaracterizes the GBD as a let it rip strategy. What he's doing is not, he's, I mean, he's obviously attacking me, but he's also sending a signal to other scientists. He's the funder of 40, uh, $40 billion of science in the United States. Every scientist of note who's published, who's written on COVID, almost every scientist in the United States and many other countries, some of the very top scientists receive their funding from the NIH. I personally have had my work funded by the NIH for, for 20 years. It's dangerous to speak up against the head of the NIH if you want your career to continue. Getting funding from the NIH is absolutely vital for advancing your career as a scientist in, in these areas. And he was sending a signal to other scientists, don't you dare speak up if you, if you value your career. I think I need to, I, I think I misspoke. Uh, th thank you for the correction. I meant to say we haven't been able to rely on the CDC and NIH uh, for COVID information. And it's crazy. I mean, you just brought up uh, how much funding they get. How much of that, do you happen to know how much of that was even spent on COVID research? Oh, enor enormous amounts on COVID research have gone, and we've, we've, we've but we we uh, haven't really focused on the critical thing. The critical thing is how do you protect the vulnerable? Uh, I mean, I, some of the research money was actually well spent, right? So I think the money on the vaccine development was quite well spent. Mm -hmm. um, on the other hand, the NIH, NIH and the NIAID, led by Tony Fauci in particular, failed miserably in the development. Uh, and evaluation 
of early treatment options, right? So the NIH has, for instance, a study called Active 6 that's supposed to evaluate ivermectin, a big randomized evaluation that's supposed to be done in, in March of 2023. That should have been sped up. Just like we sped up the uh, development and evaluation of the vaccines, we should have done the same with early treatment. Um, all of these controversies over things like ivermectin uh, should have been resolved a year ago with large, high-quality trials. Because it's not as if these ideas about these, these uh, repurposed drugs weren't known. Uh, the, the, uh, the drug companies have a very strong interest in evaluating on-patent medications. The NIH doesn't need to play an enormously important role in that. Let the drug companies do that themselves. They have funding resources for that. The NIH's real role, if it's to serve a real pur public purpose, is to evaluate inexpensive off-patent drugs because no company has an incentive to evaluate those. But there is a strong public interest to evaluate them, especially if they, they appear promising, and they are. Um, and so a lot of the nonsense that we've had about uh, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine, fluvoxamine um, should have been resolved with high quality studies that were not performed by Tony Fauci and the NIH. Um, and I think uh, there's some, some cl claims that, that it led, that if we'd had done this, we would have saved, you know, hundreds of thousands of lives. And you know what, that might be true. What if active six turns out to show that, flu that, uh, that ivermectin actually works? Think of how many lives we would have saved if it was widely used. What if fluvoxamine turns out to be as good as, as promising as it looks in these randomized trials that have already been done, right? Uh, I mean, uh, so I think the NIH played a, a malign role by not prioritizing the evaluation, early and rapid, uh, high-quality evaluation of early treatment. Um, the other, the other thing about, about that I'll say is, is it has to do with the drugs that were approved. Like the, uh, there are drugs like remdesivir um, that I think were approved on very weak evidence. Um, I don't believe it, it's particularly effective. Uh, I, and and uh, there were drugs that were approved, like the monoclonal antibodies, which for reasons I do not understand, came under this sort of political cloud. Um, I, I mean, I have a theory. I mean, I think a lot of the uh, uh, the um, sort of downplaying of early treatment, at least in 2021, had to do with this idea inside public health that if there was an early treatment available and it's widely known, then it would discourage vaccination. But I believe that to be short-sighted. I think that the vaccine, you can tell people honestly that it reduces their risk of death if they were to get infected. That's absolutely true. And at the same time, have early treatment available, uh, early treatment uh, uh, options, good ones available and widely known so that people know that if they were to get sick, regardless of whether they're vaccinated or not, there's treatments that, that they don't need to fear the disease so much. So I think um, both this sort of attempt to manipulate the population uh, to treat the population as if they weren't able to, to keep two ideas in their head at the same time, early treatments available, vaccines are effective. Um, that, that was a mistake I mean, I mean, a bad, bad mistake by public health. It, it sort of undercut trust in public health. Yeah, I've... Should, go ahead. Yeah, I was saying, I don't think you should... I don't think public health should be in the business of manipulating the public. Public health should be in the business of treating the public like adults, 
uh, you know, adults like adults, children like children, um, and uh, not and uh, and not trying to manipulate. Give people honestly what what the evidence shows, and then make recommendations on the basis of that. Don't gin up fear. Don't lie to the public. Yeah, I I I wonder why I I never understood it. Is that you know when it when it comes to vaccine hesitancy, the media sure likes to point the finger at people uh, that lean to the right of of center uh, and say you know. We, uh, I say we because I, 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 I consider myself conservative. Is that you know we are you know vaccine conspiracy theorists um, that 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 we uh, you know are spreading misinformation. We're being deplatformed and things like that. Um, but I don't know if that's necessarily true because I see people uh, like Anthony Fauci and 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 uh, Dr. Walensky at the CDC where they're they're saying things that are just contradicting themselves. I mean, I I don't have any scientific background, but I know that when you say you don't need a mask and you do need a mask, that's going to confuse people, right? Or, you know, when you say uh, vaccines work, but you need to put a mask on uh, after you're vaccinated, right? Uh, Dr. Walensky somehow uh, was able to uh, say that, uh, I think she said masks were 80% effective or something crazy like that. And it's, it's, well, no wonder people are confused. There's, there's no consistent messaging coming from, from, from our own agencies. Uh, and like you said, we have to rely on uh, other countries to get our information because our agencies aren't really, really doing their job. Uh, now we're, the, we're in the new year. Um, where are we at with COVID-19? Is it you know, is it over for the individual who's, um, let's say, uh, naturally immune or double vaccinated? Um, what are your concerns about the new year? Where do you think that COVID's going to head uh, uh, in the in the next couple months? Well, I think uh, in, there are some promising signs, weirdly promising signs. So, like, we're in the midst of this massive uh, uh, Omicron outbreak, and um, the this outbreak has produced cases, case numbers that are, you know by far the most we've seen per day in many, many parts of the country. Um, and uh, what I'm seeing is instead of the, the, the same old panic, there's, there's starting to be a realization that the, the policies we followed for two years have failed. And I, I think that that is a healthy, healthy development. These lockdowns, these social distancing, these isolations, uh, the mask mandates, the closed schools, all of that together has not been adequate to stop this disease, which I mean, you know, that should come as no surprise. This is a very infectious, infectious disease spread by aerosol, most likely. Um, And um, with, uh, with, with, with a seasonal pattern, then we're in COVID season. So, I think the beginning of the of 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 healing starts with the realization that we we previously had an illusion of control over the spread of this virus. That those methods that we thought made us virtuous, that made us that control the disease, did not actually produce any control of the disease, and had nothing to do with actual virtue. So, uh, understanding that those interventions have failed is the beginning of wisdom. And I think we're starting to get to that point. Um, the, the end game of COVID is that it joins the 200 other pathogens that inflict humans forever, right? There is no technology we possess to get rid of COVID. It will always be with us. Um, 
And once you understand that, now you can start to think clearly. The right thing then is, it's always going to be with us. How do we protect people against it? Well, the vaccines are a good start. The development of more early treatments, good early treatments and deployment at wide scales. Um, the use of, of testing just so you can help protect the vulnerable. So like before I go visit grandma, I test myself, right? Rather than testing myself every day obsessively, which accomplishes almost nothing. Um, I, I, rather than making the control of COVID as the central goal of society, we then put COVID in its place as a health threat that uh, for the vulnerable, but with tools that we have to mitigate the harm. That's, I think, where we're headed. And we're very close. I mean, maybe even we're already, already there in some places. I mean, the, the, the decoupling of cases from deaths is the end point, as far as I'm concerned, uh, in terms of the biology of the disease. Um, the pandemic, though, is over when um, political leaders say it's over. Right, the, that, the end of the pandemic is a political decision, not a biological one. The end of the 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 endemicity of COVID, um, the fact that it's in the population at large will continue to circulate forever in seasonal waves, that is baked in the cake, because that's where we are now, and that's where we will continue to be for the rest of the time. And lastly, I I I also did this. Uh, I closed the show out with with Dr. Gandhi this way um, because I I think it's important. Uh, anybody that's still on the fence about whether or not they need to get a vaccine, whether or not they should, um, do you have any like last uh, you know comments for them? Uh, any encouraging thoughts for the vaccinated uh, about where we are right now? I mean, I I understand people who are worried about the vaccine. It, it was. Um, first, it was uh, evaluated, produced and evaluated at world record speed. Uh, and I understand people are worried about new technologies. That, that makes complete sense to me. What I'd say to them is that I, I, I've, been, I've been working in vaccine safety work for over a decade before this. There are known risks for some populations of the vaccine, young people, especially young men with myocarditis, but that's rel uh, relatively rare. It's like one in 5,000. You may legitimately not want to get the vaccine, with at least those mRNA vaccines in that case. Um, and there's legitimate uncertainties around the vaccine because we have, don't have long-term safety efforts, uh, evidence. But the harm from COVID, especially if you're older, is so high and the vaccine mitigates the severe harm from COVID so much that you should be willing, I think it's wise to be willing to put up with some uncertainty because you know for certain that if you were to get COVID, if you're let's say 70 years old, 60 years old, the risk is so high that, that, that it would offset that potential uncertainty around the harm from the vaccine. It's just the prudent thing to do. You're, you're, every medicine that you take always has benefits and, and side effects potentially. And you're always balancing those and thinking about whether it's wise to take the medicine. Right, uh, and this vaccine is no different. So, if you're in a vulnerable group and you're not vaccinated, let me make a plea: please, please, please get vaccinated. It's the wise thing to do. It'll protect you against a disease that's circulating that puts you at much higher risk than you ought to be, um, and it might save your life. Um, if you're at lower risk, well, I mean, I think you can. You know, if you're if you're a a, a, a thirty year old, it's, it's it's I think it's still you know it's it's completely legitimate to get va vaccinated. It's completely wise to get vaccinated. 
Um, and I, but I can understand a 30 year old might saying, okay, well, I don't know. But if, if, if you're, if you're, um, if you have our COVID recovered, the vaccine pr- produces less, it's less important for you, but can still protect you against severe disease. So again, if you're vulnerable or older, older, I think it's very important. The vaccine should be used in service of focus protection, I think. Um, and for other populations, talk with your doctor about it. Let it be a, a, a normal medical decision rather than something that's coerced on you. Fantastic. I, I thank you for those closing thoughts. Um, Dr. Bhattacharya, it's been uh, just an honor to have you on. Uh, I think we had a fantastic conversation, covered a lot of points. Um, and hopefully we can uh, we can all start sort of discussing uh, in, in nuance some of these ideas. And, and I hope that this new year uh, has has uh, better news uh, regarding COVID than, than previous years. And I hope we can all uh, see the light at the end of the tunnel for sure. So again, thank you so much for coming on. It was truly a blast. Thank you, Jared. Nice to talk with you. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Cliffs and Fences. The best way to help the show is to share it and leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For podcast updates, follow me on Instagram at Cliffs and Fences Podcast or on Twitter at Jared underscore Ormsby.